0: Good evening. Let me just talk about a couple of books before I leave them up here and just forget. I say to everybody, if it was your product, I could sell it, but I forget my own. Um, The first book I ever wrote was called What on Earth is Glory, which um, you've got to be crazy to make your first book writing about glory. It's one of the biggest words in the Bible, but um, I I think the way I'm wired is to make things practical. And uh, I I think it's really important so I I started thinking about this subject of glory Uh, it was related to sonship actually I I believe that that's the the sequence uh, that he doesn't just call us sons but glorious sons and daughters glory filled glory carrying Uh, but you know when when you start reading about glory it begs a question what is it it's the biggest word other than probably God in the Bible we sing about it but we don't really know what it means and, uh, you know, we sing songs like, Let Your Glory Go From Here. What? What's that look like? Because then a preacher will come in and say, Well, glory's a weighty thing. Well, okay, so w- let your weighty thing go from here. It's like it doesn't help a great deal, you know? And, and I, I, love the, I love Shekinah glory clouds. Um, I've been in one, so I really have, and it was amazing. Um, but I don't want to live between a Shekinah glory cloud and a weighty thing. And you have a glory. And actually, you're going to take your glory with you to heaven. So don't believe the lie, you can't take it with you. That's just an excuse for reckless expenditure on your husband's credit card. <laughs> you can't take it with you, darling. No, but you can take your glory with you, because the kings of the earth will take their glory through the 12 gates that are 12 pearls. So what is this thing called glory? So I started uh, writing, I wrote a definition of God's glory. God's glory is the result of God expressing himself. I checked that out with a Messianic rabbi and he thought it worked. So um, you know, I, I covered my tracks. And, and, and then your glory. What's your glory? Because you have a glory. The Bible says you were created for my glory. Um, the Bible says my glory rejoices in Psalm 16. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. So what's your glory? You have a glory. And uh, my definition of that is the eternal value that you have. Because you reveal, reflect, or point to the nature, the power, the attributes of God. And uh, so I unpacked it. It's got some of my uh, sonship journey in there, a little bit of that. But I talk about things like glory and wisdom, glory and government, glory and beauty. um, And I just unpack some thoughts around this subject of glory. And I'm still quite surprised that I did... um, write a book on glory to be honest and I have some of the best endorsements ever from people like R.T. Kendall I mean he endorsed my book it's like became a friend of mine um, so I mean that's worth buying the book just for his name on the back really there so uh, anyone anyone got a birthday today? Is it your birthday? Oh you can have the book oh yeah it's, yeah you can have the book you're amazing yeah that was a that was a no-brainer for you well played and uh she's a sweet girl that is I mean a very very special girl watch her just watch out you know just follow what she's doing um this is actually my copy because I've got a copy to scribble on um but I just wanted to talk a little bit about this and I'll touch on some of it tomorrow and I'll uh there's bits of it that are coming out but uh, when I was flying back from uh, Brazil in 2014, I went to the World Cup in 2014 in Brazil with my youngest son. Um, there was a conference at the same time, just a coincidence, it was just one of those strange things that happens, you know. And uh, so we went to a couple of uh, football matches and, uh, and we went to down to Rio and such like. And I was flying home Saturday night and it, it was one of only about four times I preached on a Sunday morning in Bethel, but it was the next day. I'd just been away in Brazil and I, I sat on a plane and I'd just been on the trip for a lifetime with my youngest son. Um, you know, England didn't do too well in that World Cup, but let's not go there. It was, it was the absolute, it was so special to be with him um, and there were lots of elements of it. You know, when I remember my dad had tickets for the FA Cup final um, when I was probably about 12 years of age. And... Uh, it broke his heart that he couldn't take me because they were business tickets, you know, from work and he was going. And I remember it breaking his heart. And so for me, there was this redemption that I get to go to the World Cup with my youngest son and not just anywhere but Brazil, which, uh, you know, we might have invented it, but they made it beautiful and the Germans made it perfect. But, you know, um, you know, we got to see it. You know, it was uh, it was this trip full of memories. We went, you know, we went to the game where there was, you know, we were out, you know, the third game of the uh, of the, of the First table bit, and we have tickets for the third game. You know, it's it's almost a game that you would think I'd want to forget, but I'll never forget it. We we got to the stadium, and in uh, I think it was I think that was the Sao Paulo game. One was in Belo Horizonte, one is in Sao Paulo. We got to the stadium, and I, I I said to my son, I I'm just gonna you know just gonna go into the toilet bathroom WC whatever it is you call it wherever you come from. I'm just a confused Englishman. You see, I lived in America with bathrooms and restrooms. And, and I said, uh, I'm just going to go in there. And he said, oh, I'll see you in there, Dad. And, uh, and I came out of the bathroom and he was standing there and he said, Dad, I couldn't walk through that door there into that stadium to see England play in Brazil without you next to me. And uh, never forget that. And I, so I sat on the plane and I, I, wrote, I wrote 32 things that fathers do. I just scribbled them down, things that fathers do. One of my favourites is that, you know, fathers show their children how to love their wives. And, uh, you know, my dad died when I was 15, but my dad taught me, you know, it, here's an, one. There's a lot of men who won't go into a laundry shop for their wives. My dad taught me that when I was a young man. I went shopping with him. I've never had a problem with going into a laundry shop, you know, with, you know to buy for my wife, not for any other reason. <laughs> I, I tell you that because some of this stuff's practical. We've got to learn how to do this, you know? And uh, fathers create culture. Fathers create memories. They, you know, there's a whole load of things. You know, one of my personal pet ones is... You know, and I love, I love inner healing stuff, but I sometimes get around some of the inner healing and they'll go, you know, well, you know, the mother is the nurturer and the comforter and, and the one who creates the safe environment at home. That's beautiful. I, I love that. But you end up the dad who wasn't there because you were working a 60-hour week and you you feel like, well, I suck, don't I? You know, I didn't... Well, dads show their kids the world. They introduce their kids to the world that they'll be sent out into. And I'll never forget, my wife in a worship team in a church and uh, it was a Tuesday night I was on call felt him young offenders and uh, I I was looking after the boys our two little boys and uh, and I got a call that there was a young man uh, that had tried to kill himself and I I was on call I I grabbed the boys and and had to kind of dump them at the church where you know Sue was practicing worship and it was half of me that felt terrible it's like that was you know felt horrible you know but my two sons never stopped asking me about how that boy was doing. And, and it was just that, it's one of those little lessons like, actually, they were introduced to a bigger world than the world of their home. And so there are loads of things that, uh, that fathers do. And I've written a chapter in here called An Invitation to Women. How you write uh, that is, is quite difficult to work out exactly the right language. But here's the truth. Women reveal the father. You should have been much louder about that. You feel, I mean, she reveals the Father. Walking through the streets of Brazil. So we, what we've got to do is make sure that, although I'll often talk about talking gender neutral, I, I want women to know, you reveal the Father too. Genesis one twenty six: let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. Now, you know, I, we're going to mother, I, I sometimes can mother and I father, and my wife, mothers, and fathers, you know, we we reveal the father in different ways, I know I can't have children, and I'm not about us being equal, but I am about us being of equal value, and that's really important to me, so I I wrote a chapter in here about an invitation to women, you reveal the father, ladies, you really do, and you need to know that, and so um, there's a whole bunch of things in there, there's uh, something that we'll We'll go after tomorrow, which is overcoming some lies on the way to becoming a father. Um, I, I feel really happy with the way it's come out. I've written little questions at the end of every chapter, so you could you could read it as a group and you could you know take a chapter a week or something and then sit and discuss the questions, because this world needs fathers. It really does. It, it needs to be shown um, what, it, what it really is to be a father, and yet a lot of it is really practical stuff that we do and I think the more that we're aware that in the practical we reveal the supernatural well there's something that grows in us when, when we realize that so um, that's things fathers do you can't have that one because I've scribbled all over it and then I know there's some crazy people who like the ones that preachers scribble over but I'm, I'm just working on it so all right I have a debate going on in my head but let me tell you a story. These Apple pencils that you just criticized just now, they need to do what they're told. Magnetic ones are really weird because I dropped it the other day with metal chairs and I could not find it. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's stuck somewhere, I know, but I can't see it. Let me tell you about Sarah. Sarah, and actually the first time I ever told this story, I said that she lived in the southwest of England, because I was telling the story in America. So we might as well keep the story that Sarah lives in the southwest of England. We're close. And she grew up in, in a family hotel. The oldest older sister, who was 10 years older than her, Sally. And uh, Sally and her mum basically ran the beautiful hotel. And, uh, and Sarah, well, she was the apple of her daddy's eye. Dad was the life and soul of the party at the hotel. He was the guy that kind of made it fun, but mum and Sally, they, they did the work. If you wanted mum or Sally, they were in the office doing the work. And Sarah, well, Sarah's favourite thing to do was to, uh, to climb upstairs, even from when she was very, very young, to the penthouse suite on the top floor. Her favourite thing was if the penthouse suite wasn't occupied and she could sit on the seat and look out at the ocean and watched the ships passing by. It was her favorite place to be and as the years went by everyone knew that if they couldn't find Sarah she'd be up in the penthouse suite especially if it wasn't booked out that weekend. And sometimes her dad would be up there and Sarah knew that it just took one flutter of her eyelashes to get anything that she wanted from her dad. And time went by and Sarah began to realise that she didn't want to be a part of the family business. And uh, when she turned 18, she started to come up with a plan to do something different. She'd worked out that every year her mum and Sally went away to the hotel manager's conference and she decided that that would be the weekend that, all being well, the penthouse suite would be empty and she'd buy dad's favourite bottle of wine and they'd sit on the seat overlooking the ocean and watched the ships go by and, and she would tell her dad what she really wanted to do with her life. And sure enough, the weekend came around and she sat there in the penthouse suite up there that everyone by now affectionately called Sarah's room. And she said to her dad, look, I don't want to be a part of this family business. This isn't for me. I've been watching those ships forever. I want to go and do something different. Would you let me go? I, I want to go and see if I can try out and have a career in acting or something like that and her dad said yes because he always said yes sure enough Mum and Sally came home after their weekend away and and they told Mum and Sally and so the plan was all worked out that Sarah would fly off and see if she could make it she decided that she'd go for the the big one and go to Hollywood and she got her stuff together and flew away and and for a while, she, she stayed in touch and called home. And She was doing her best. She, she went for interviews. She tried to get places in acting schools. But as time went by, it seemed more and more difficult. Her phone calls home started to slow down. She was realizing that she was something of a failure. And she started to go out for dinner with men just to get a free meal. She, as time went by the, the meals turned to nights and before she knew it it wasn't really free meals it was more that she was being paid for a night with a guy in a room. And Time went by and eventually she wasn't calling home and back home they realized that Sarah was out there and they may never see her again and, and they just got on with life and they made some attempts to get in touch with her but the truth was that by now Sarah had changed her name. She changed her name to Frankie and she changed her appearance and she didn't really look like the Sarah that had sat on that seat and chatted to her dad. So more time went by and horror of horrors Sarah discovered that she was pregnant not only was she pregnant, but she didn't have any money. She didn't only not have any money, she didn't have anywhere to live and she found herself living in a women's shelter in downtown Hollywood. And there she was pregnant and barely any reason to be alive. And came a day that she went downstairs and there was a table set up and a local church had set up a table and it said, you know, in four weeks' time it's Mother's Day and we'd like to try and help you. To contact home they said to Sarah and Sarah she walked away and thought I don't know I, I definitely can't call my dad I'd break his heart maybe just maybe maybe I could talk to mom and so she called her mom they arranged for it on Mother's Day she called her mom and said mom it's it's Sarah here I made a mess a big mess can you send me the money so that I can fly home and Can you book me an appointment in an abortion clinic? I got myself pregnant, but please, whatever you do, don't tell Dad. Sure enough, Sarah's mum sent the money and made all the arrangements because she was a businesswoman. She made all the arrangements and so Sarah got on a plane. She had to change her name back to being Sarah because her passport was Sarah. So she left Frankie behind in Hollywood and she jumped on the plane and mum Sure enough, was there at the airport. Mum said, "Come with me. Let's go. I've, I've made some arrangements." And Sarah said, "Well, you know, I'd like to stay down here for a few days after the abortion. I just want to recover from it." Sarah's mum said, "I've made an appointment for you at the hospital. You're not having an abortion. This is my grandchild you're carrying." going to take you to the hospital and then we're going to stay in a spa for a few days and sure enough they did and she went to the hospital and had a check up and everything was going well and they went to the spa and Sarah's mum cleaned her up and bought her clothes and started to see her Sarah back again and then a few days later they jumped in the car and and they drove back home of course she was scared what's dad going to say and they drove journey home, talking, having moments of silence and fear and worry, And, and they drove up to the hotel. And, and who was there at the bottom of the steps, but her dad and opened the car door for her and hugged her and took her by the hand and said, "Come with me." Sarah walked with her dad, hand in hand, up the stairs. the first flight of stairs, the second flight of stairs. Where, where are we going, Dad? The third flight of stairs and they stood at the bottom of the fourth flight of stairs that leads up to the penthouse, to Sarah's room. The dad said, I I haven't been able to go up these stairs. All the time that you've been gone, I couldn't go up these stairs. I couldn't face the penthouse. But when we got the call, I started to go up there. Come with me. So they walked upstairs and the dad opened the door of the penthouse And Sarah's room really was Sarah's room now. And he turned it into a nursery ready for the baby. He redecorated it with the best of furniture. And there was the seat by the window. And they sat for a moment in the seat by the window and hugged. And then he said, come downstairs. And as they were going downstairs, Sarah started to hear some noise. And she started to think there's some sort of party going on. Maybe one of the guests has got a wedding reception at took her by the hand and walked into a room and realized it wasn't just a party it was a baby shower and that all the guests that had come to that hotel over the years that knew little Sarah who ran between their legs and loved to run up the stairs and sit on the bench seat overlooking the ocean they were there to celebrate Sarah and her baby but then her dad was there and looking around he realized where's Sally Well, of course, her dad knew where Sally would be. Sally would be in the office running the hotel. And so her dad went out looking for Sally. Sally, where are you? He found her in the back room working. and Sally said to her dad, well, what's going on? You never celebrated me. Never thrown a party for me. My sister went away and wasted everything. The dad took her by the hand and they went for a walk out in the grounds and Sally said to her dad you don't really know me do you you don't know that I come and sit on this bench and this is where I sit and dream and Sally's dad said to her if only you'd invited me to come and sit I'd have come and sat and dreamed with you and eventually they walked back into the room to the baby shower And you know the story, I'm telling you. It's just a twist on a story. Mainly for you girls, because I don't think you should always be left out. I mean, there should be a prodigal daughter story in the Bible. It should be that kind of a story. Because that's the story. And you could flesh it out and you could tell it many different ways. It's the most extraordinary story. I loved your comment that it's a meta-narrative. Archbishop Temple said it's the gospel within the gospel. In my opinion, Luke 15, other than the cross of Jesus Christ, there's nothing to touch it. Nothing. It's the most beautiful story. I laid on my hotel bed in September 2012, having spent two days at a Reinhard Bonnke School of Evangelism. To this day, I'm amazed that I found myself in that room. I was given a prophetic word on February the 2nd, 2012. I know I'm strange. I remember dates. You should remember dates too, because the more you remember the dates, the more you'll believe your story. The more you'll be able to run back over your story. Because one of the biggest problems in the church today, in my opinion, is this. Everyone believes our stories up here. But our stories aren't the stories that really matter to you. It's your story. You've got to believe your story. I was given a prophetic word on a Sunday night by a guy called Mario Murillo. He was saved in the Jesus People movement, a crazy guy who would preach in Berkeley University, would rent the stadium where San Francisco 49ers used to play. And on a Sunday night, he said, Paul, you'll preach in stadiums. You'll raise up young evangelists, and God will restore to you the reason why he brought you into the kingdom. I'm still the most surprised man I know that that word was for me. A little while later, Bill came to the morning meeting on a Sunday. He said, Reinhard Bonnke just called me this week. He wants me to send my 10 best young evangelists to his school. I said, sure, I'm not one of your 10, your best, your young or your evangelists. (laughs) But he sent me. And on the Tuesday of that week, I'll never forget, I sat in the second row I listened to Reinhard Bonnke preach. He preached on the woman caught in adultery. Honestly, he led 75 million people to Jesus. So I'm not about to say that he was wrong. But I will never be able to quite believe that God would use that story because he says he used that story 70% of the time he preached the gospel. And I went home from that, and I'm not saying he's wrong at all. But you know, it's to me it's like... Of all the stories to choose, that one? Of course it's beautiful. He preached it that day. I was on the second row. I take notes. I, I take notes just to keep my brain going, basically. I like to stay in contact with the preacher. I rarely read them afterwards. I mean, I read some of the points, but I don't really do much with the notes. But it's just I note take. And I was taking notes, and 20 minutes in, I dropped my book, and I began to cry. I cried loud enough for people to know I was crying, including Reinhard Bonnke. I went home from that day and I laid on that hotel bed and I said okay God and I'm about to use virtually the same words as him I laid on my bed and said okay God if you want me to preach the gospel give me a story and he said it's Luke 15 and I said come on God everybody knows Luke 15 and I laid on my bed and I read it as if I'd never read it before And uh, if this afternoon my message was from context to repentance, tonight I want to talk about from repentance to maturity. This is my question. What would that house have looked like after the boy came home? I I dream of a post-prodigal church. And I'm I'm with Duncan. I don't really like the use of the word prodigal attached to the boy. But in terms of that story, what would a post-prodigal church look like? I think that's where we've got to get to that we've got to live beyond the boy coming home and the elder brother getting sorted out but let me take you on the journey let me just highlight a few things and, and I, the, I'm going to miss some of the bits because he did them because I don't have anything better to say and I'm going to add some bits that are the pieces that I tell so you'll have a two-hour preach on the prodigal son by the time you've finished okay But the first thing, and this is the genius of Jesus. The genius of Jesus is that he communicated with everybody that was there. That is sheer genius. And we as a church have got a lot to learn from that. You see, you've got this incredible scene. The tax gatherers, the sinners were coming near to listen to him. The Pharisees and the scribes, they're all there. And he will communicate with them all. It is sheer genius. He is called the word so he, he's you know he's got a little help and I just want to I'm going to break it down just a little bit there's three parables in Luke 15 and the first parable is about the lost sheep now I think the way I look at it is this the lost sheep wanders off sometimes we do things to life we do them the lost coin it's an inanimate object sometimes life does stuff to us but all of them are covered by the cross of Jesus Christ. And not only that, he will, through these stories, communicate with everyone. Also, just as an aside, because I I think I got tricked that night with that prophetic word, honestly, because what happened to me was I got introduced to a world of evangelists. Now, I'm not a street evangelist. I'm not that, but I have found myself in the company of evangelists. Some of my closest ministry friends scare me and they are some of the craziest people I know but God tricked me into a world where I would be their father and I would be a father of evangelists which is really what that prophetic word's all about so the first thing that I'm laying on the bed and I read this what man I honestly in my head every time I heard the story of the lost sheep I think I heard what evangelist doesn't say that it says what man that's because it's a community responsibility the sheep were a community responsibility because very few people owned a whole flock a community would own a flock therefore what man among you if one of them goes wandering wouldn't go off looking for it because you've got shared ownership I'm not going to spend too much time on that but I just want want us to all grab hold of this the reason being I believe it's the day of the evangelist I believe that God is restoring the evangelist to the church I believe he is going to put key evangelists at the government seat of local churches and where evangelists haven't found a place where they can have a base and be loved and believed in and equip the saints I believe it's going to happen and I'm expecting to see that happen in my lifetime just, I'll just continue on because it's really the, the story of the boy I want to get to. Um, the genius is that when they get the sheep, the sheep comes back, it's on the shoulders, and, it, and Jesus says, poking fun at the scribes and Pharisees, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There, he's pointing at the scribes and Pharisees because they think they don't need to repent but he's also establishing a principle and the principle is the heart of heavens rejoicing over the lost who are found. So that's the first story. The second story which again is this beauty of Jesus. He didn't have to say or what woman, but he did and it's beautiful He's got men and women. He's got the taxpayers, the sinners, the scribes, the Pharisees. He's got something that wanders off and he's got something that gets lost. He covers it all. He's a genius. And again he says in what way? I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. He's establishing a principle. And then he gets to the story. The story of the prodigal son, most Bibles call it, as Duncan said, the extravagant prodigal father. And we have a boy who says, give me my money. There are various discussions about it, about whether it's inheritance or not inheritance, but actually it doesn't really matter because here's what I believe. An inheritance to an orphan is just a bunch of cash. See, it doesn't matter what its origin was. If you're not a son or a daughter, it's just a bunch of cash. I'll risk saying this. A theologian who's not a son is just a critic. (laughs) Because you can't read this book unless you read it through the lens of sonship and daughtership. And it's one of those weird things, you know, if you're, well, I watch a lot of people on social media tear, tear people apart. It's like, I don't know why they're doing it. I really don't. It's that critic thing and um you know when you become a son or a daughter you can receive from everyone you can eat the meat spit out the bones and you don't have to put the bones in pictures on social media just eat the meat just enjoy it I think we've got to learn to do that so he he goes off I'm going to come back to that because I I, I'm going to ask for some poetic license uh, at the end of this to minister some people um and and we know the story he goes and uh He wastes his money but then it's interesting because he went but then a famine happens. So once again we've got he did something to life but life did something to him. And then he finds himself and he finds himself without authority, identity or assignment. Because he's feeding pigs. He doesn't have the authority to feed himself. He's the pig boy which is the lowest identity any Jewish boy could possibly have. And he he has no assignment in life. And one of the, the real keys that happens to us on this sonship, daughtership journey is we get our identity, we get our assignment, and we get our authority. And without those, we end up wandering around, wasting our lives. And then what happens to him is that the Bible says he came to his right mind. I like to say that he realized what he wasn't because he starts talking about I'm no longer worthy to call me your son. He's using words that he hadn't previously used very much. But this is the piece that I really just want to spend a little bit of time on. He starts the journey home. Now that night, I laid on my bed and I, I saw the story through the boy's eyes. I chose to not take the the father that I'd always visualized sitting in an armchair looking out the window and uh, we'll come back to that in a minute I'd always seen the story that way because it's kind of how it's written but that night I started to see a boy returning home a tired hungry boy there's mirages it's hot it's dusty it's the desert he's tired he's hungry he's thirsty he's probably a little bit delirious He's got a speech in his head. Anyone had to have a meeting the next day, you know, with the head teacher or the boss or the wife or something like that, where you've got a speech in your head, you know, you got the speech, it's spinning around in your head. He's got a speech spinning around in his head. He's on the way home. He's looking. I don't know how far away it was, but it was a little way as I understand it from the story. He's traveling home. He's looking. He's looking for landmarks. Where's the fence? Where's the tree? Where's, the, where's that hedge we used to play on as kids? He's traveling home. He starts to see some movement in the distance. What's the movement all about? Now, a guy called Kenneth E. Bailey, some of you might have come across him. He, um, he lived in the Middle East for a long time. He wrote a couple of books. He wrote Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes and Paul through Mediterranean eyes. He also wrote a book called The Cross and the Prodigal. And uh, he says that the, the elder brother is actually a kind of an opposite type of Christ. Let me explain. The elder brother should have warned the boy not to leave home. He should have said to him, this is the way you should live your life. Don't live this way. This is a bad idea. He should have done that, which for me is kind of a picture of the Old Testament. The Old Testament with the, the rules, the way to live. But here's the interesting thing. The elder brother's second responsibility would have been to come and meet the returning boy as the mediator between the father and the younger boy. So when... The boy's coming home and he's seeing movement. In the culture of the day, he might have expected it could be my elder brother coming to take me home. But it doesn't appear to be the elder brother. It it appears to be someone else. But that someone else is actually possibly running past someone. And Kenneth E. Bailey suggests this. That in the culture of the day, in a scenario like this, um, that the villagers, the village boys would have been given permission to shame the returning boy out of the village and that the village boys would have brought a large clay pot and smashed it in front of the returning boy because remember this returning boy is about to bring shame on the village. Because who's that boy going to marry? Who's that boy going to work for? They don't want him in the village. So the village boys, as Bailey suggests it, and I don't, don't make a theology out of this. Just take the illustration and, and uh, just allow it to work um, in the direction that I want to take it in a moment. So the boys coming home, who's running? Well, there's the village boys that looks like they're coming, but there's someone else who's running. And Bailey suggests that the reason the father ran was to get to the son before the boys. That's that's his theory. That's that's what his interpretation of the culture is. I find this kind of stuff absolutely fascinating. And the ceremony is called a Kazazar ceremony, apparently. See, the, the beauty of the picture is this. The father has to get to the boy before the villagers shame the boy. Because the only one... Who, who can change that decision is the father. So the father is running past the villagers. The villagers are there with a clay pot ready to smash that clay pot and shame the boy out of the village. But the father is running to get there first. It's a stunning picture. Because the father bore our sorrows and our shame. Let me just describe. The elder brother should have warned the boy. The Old Testament should have come and met the boy, the mediator, between the father and the younger son. And actually later on in the story, he should have been serving the wine at the banquet. Which I think is a picture of heaven. Because Jesus said he's going to serve us the best wine. He should have been in there. So the elder brother has failed his responsibilities. The father, he breaks rules for love. See the father gave the boy the money he probably shouldn't have done that and the father pulls up his robe and a middle-aged Middle Eastern man runs he broke the rules the cultural rules he broke them for love and not only that but he broke the rules to go out into the field to the elder brother because he should never have left the guests at the banquet that was rude. The father breaks rules for love. The elder brother failed his responsibilities. So let's get back to the story. The father runs. The father runs and bears the shame. My imagination is this, the father, as you beautifully were saying, is this gut-wrenching love that is expressed. He's hugging the younger son who's just come home. He's hugging him, but almost at the same time, in my mind, I can see the village boys smashing a clay pot and shards of the clay pot are hitting the back of the father's exposed legs that should never have been exposed. But he doesn't care because he's hugging his son because the father bore our shame. And the father is the only one who can bear the boy's shame. He had to get there first. And I want to I just talk for a moment about shame. And I know there are, there are some experts on it. Tracy, you are clearly an expert on this. I just want to minister into this for, for a moment. I, I didn't really know much about shame until I had prostate cancer. And I started to experience what I would call whispering shame. I, I had people who tell me, "Well, it, you probably ate the wrong food. You've caused your own cancer." The per- first person who told me that, I actually did say to them, "You've never seen me eat one meal." But there were people trying to tell me that. It was California, so they get there is a little bit of, you know, health kit kind of stuff. Some of it's really good and helpful. I had people tell me there must be somebody you've not forgiven. You must have There must be something going on. You must have some sort of sin. I had that sort of stuff going on. See, shame will tell you what you're not. And it will keep you from the one voice that can tell you who you are. And it's whispering shame. It's this subtle whispering shame. It's not the same as guilt. Guilt is just what you've done. But shame tells you who you are. And shame will take something that you've done and turn it into your identity. And I started to experience an awareness of this whispering shame. And I'm in Bethel. People fly from all over the world to get healed in Bethel. And I don't appear to be being healed supernaturally. I was healed. Surgeon's knife and a lot of supernatural interventions. My life was saved by supernatural intervention. So I, I, don't, I don't have any shame about how I was healed. But in those early days, I started to have this whispering shame, putting doubt in my head. Shame is actually, one of the ways I talk about shame is, shame is demonstrated in the story of Cinderella, believe it or not. I know you might think that's strange. I think Cinderella would make a great parable. <laughs> Cinderella, the. you probably know what, what that means because Portuguese is probably fairly similar to Spanish. Cinderella means the maid of the ashes, Cinderella. That's her name. Her name is derived from what she does. Her identity is, is in what she does. She's the maid of the ashes. And the wicked stepsisters, what do they do? or the wicked stepmother what do they do they keep her from the father don't they you're the maid of the ashes you can't go see the father her identity was in the ashes so many people have that experience in life that that their identity is somehow less than somebody else's and of course you know the story Because one night the Holy Spirit or the fairy godmother, whichever way you want to read it, (laughs) shows up. Tolkien, it is, that said that fairy stories are not so much a journey into the castles and the enchanted woods as they are a journey into the soul of man. And I'm not going to argue with Tolkien. And you know what happens, the fairy godmother comes along and pumpkins become carriages and mice become footmen and and Cinderella gets to dance the night away and she's not Cinderella, she's the princess, she's the belle of the ball until midnight strikes and everything changes back except somehow one glass slipper doesn't get switched back into whatever it was before and of course the, the prince visits everywhere and he's looking for the girl to whom the shoe fits and there's just this... Small memory, this small reminder of who she really is and the prince knows if he can put that shoe on the right foot then he can restore the full identity of that person. And you know the story, eventually he gets to Cinderella and Cinderella puts the shoe on her feet and sure enough it fits. And much to the disgust of the stepsisters, she jumps on the back of a horse and rides off and lives happily ever after. It's a beautiful story. It really is. I, I really do love it. I tell fairy stories. I I have a message out of Rapunzel and Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> Seriously. I'll give you them really quickly. You see, this this the soul is mind, will, and emotions. Yeah. Cinderella, I think, is the story of the will. See, her will and her identity is in is in what other people say it is. A- and she's set free. By the Prince giving her her true identity. Sleeping beauty. Sleeping beauty is what? Asleep. Yeah? She's stunningly beautiful. You've ever seen an ugly sleeping beauty? She's wearing the most perfect dress. I mean, it's just been pressed that morning. She's been asleep for a 100 years? It's not faded. There's a perfect rose lying there. With dewdrops on it. Her lipstick. You know it's Maybelline commercial ready. <laughs> and there she is lying. On a bed asleep. And everyone knows she's beautiful. Except one person. Herself. And how she awoken? With a kiss. See it's the emotions. Her emotions are asleep. And our emotions are woken up. With the kiss of heaven. You can think I'm crazy. I don't really mind. I wasn't intending to go this place. Whatever. But it's fun. Rapunzel. Rapunzel's the mind. Rapunzel's locked in the tower. She's locked up there. She's been imprisoned by some cruel and weird story about stuff in baths and plug holes and all sorts of weird stuff. Because Tangle didn't show it. Tangled, which our oldest grandson, when it first came out, he used to call girl with hair, which I just loved. <laughs> you see, she's locked, she's imprisoned in her mind. How how does the the wicked woman get up to her? Her hair. Let down your hair, and she climbs up and abuses her some more. How does the prince get up? Your hair. See, the way you often have to be got free, I mean, how do you trust again? You trust again, let down your hair. She actually had the capacity to set herself free all along. Because in the Disney story, she ties her hair around the thing and lets herself down. I mean, if she had that much hair, she could have made a rope and climbed down. But the point is, it's mind, will, and emotions, it's the soul that's why Tolkien wrote about what he did but anyway back to cinderella that was free back to cinderella and back to shame shame will tell you what you're not you see those boys in the village would want that returning boy to forever live with the identity of the boy that was shamed out of the village that's what they wanted They wanted to get there before the Father, the only one who could say the words that were shared so beautifully this morning and which I'll touch on in a moment. Shame will tell you what you're not. Shame will tell you that you are not as successful as someone else. Shame will tell you, oh, I'll arrive in the church when they give me a microphone. Shame will tell you that you don't live on the nice side of town, that your family line is not as good as someone else's. They're not as beautiful, you're not as clever, you're not as talented. Shame will tell you all this stuff. For some, shame causes eating disorders. I say carefully for some, but for some it does. Because they'll look at a mirror and not think they're as beautiful as someone else. The worst cases of shame result in suicide. The tragic loss and one that I probably hate as much as I hate cancer having worked in prison and been the first on scene, have cut kids down, have tried to resuscitate kids, have picked up a phone and called relatives and told them that their son has killed themselves in prison. I hate it, but a lot of it comes from shame. A lot of it comes from this whispering voice that tells you what you're not. Because the devil wants you. He wants you to believe that you're not as good as someone else. But God wants you to know that you are you, uniquely, beautifully you. He's not looking for you to be someone else. Shame is very closely related to comparison, very closely related. For instance, you see, if I was to come in here tonight and think, oh, these guys, they really would have preferred Bill Johnson. So I decide to try and be Bill Johnson. And I stand perilously close to the edge of the stage. I hold an iPad in my hand and I read jokes from it. I pause for uncomfortably long periods of time. And I drop Twitter bombs on you. And you can't type fast enough. I would give you a really bad bill. And I wouldn't give you me. And many of us live our lives in this place of shame and comparison. Instead of showing up. It's what happened in the garden. Adam covered up. God said, where are you? God knew where Adam was. It was Adam that didn't know where Adam was. God said, who told you you were naked? Who told you to hide? Who told you to cover up? Who told you to stop being present in the garden with me? See, shame will tell you all of these things. Shame was trying to tell me that my cancer was my fault. Shame was trying to tell me that I would be less of a man after my surgery. Shame tells women that there'll be less of a woman after hysterectomies or surgery for breast cancer and mastectomies. But my experience is that all of those women that I've ever met are more of a woman afterwards than they were before. They have something that happens to them in that journey. And I'd like to think that something happened to me in my journey and that I'm more of a man after it than I was before. But Shane wants to tell you, these lies it wants to tell you what you're not it wants to tell you that you're not as successful as someone else that your ministry is not as successful that your job's not as successful your business is not as successful and ultimately that you are not successful and ultimately the enemy wants to say you're actually a failure and if he can get you to believe that he's got you if I'm talking to you in any way if you're hearing something and thinking, that's me, that shame thing, that's me, I want to invite you to stand. I've learned something. And I think about nine times out of ten it's true, and that is that the first person who stands isn't just standing to get free but it's standing for other people to get free. And you stood first. And it may or may not be true, but I bless you, number one, for standing first, because I don't know whether you notice it, but once you stood, other people stood. Something happens, and it may very well be something in your life, what you do, your career, the places you go, where this isn't just about you. This is about you breaking shame off of other people. You being a carrier of a message that breaks shame off of other people. And you don't have to tell me now. You don't ever have to tell me. But if you want to, you're welcome to. And I bless you to be a shame-breaking champion. Because I believe that there is something on you with that courage. But the rest of you, good news. You just dealt with your shame. Now, I I love inner healing stuff and you might need some help. But here's the truth. Standing up destroys it because authenticity destroys shame. See, it's the first step. It's not worrying about what the person next to you might think you're standing up for. You just destroyed shame. It was a gossamer thin garment that you wore into this room. It's now at your feet. Please leave it there. They'll clear it up. You don't need to take it home with you. You don't need to wear it again. It didn't suit you anyway. It didn't fit you anyway. But here's the really good news. And I, I really do believe that this is a kind of a hidden good news. The Bible says, instead of shame, a double portion. Now well, that's interesting exchange rate. How could that be? See, this is what I believe. The illustration with Bill is, is this. When I believe something about me, I project onto you that you believe that about me that I walk into a room and think I don't feel as good as Bill Johnson therefore they probably don't think I'm as good as Bill Johnson so they'd rather have Bill Johnson so I'll try and be Bill Johnson and you'll get a really bad Bill Johnson see when you deal with shame you're going to get all of me and I'm going to get all of you that's how you get a double portion you project onto God what you think about you and once you've done that you can be fully real with God And you'll get all of God and he'll get all of you. There are husbands and wives who suffer from this. You see, if I start to think that that I'm not a good husband and that my wife would prefer whoever I want to put in there, George Clooney or somebody like that, (laughs) she's not going to get all of me because I'm going to try and be George Clooney and I'm going to be a really bad George Clooney and she's not going to get all of me. Do you understand what I'm saying? But once we get rid of that, She gets all of me and I get all of her. Because I'm not projecting onto her something that's not true. So just begin to receive your double portion. It's available. There is a double portion available for you. A double portion of authenticity, of freedom, of being fully you. And that's the great exchange rate. Instead of shame. A double portion. And I ask that you'd silence the whispering shame. And here's the beautiful thing. Get to the Father as soon as you can because your shame has been trying to stop you get there because he has some things to say to you. He wants to tell you who he sees you to be because he sees you, he knows you, he values you as you because he made you to be you. You may be seated. The rest of the story we heard it beautifully. I just want to touch on two places just to wrap up because I believe that we're meant to go from repentance to maturity. See dealing with shame is part of the journey to maturity. Maturity is me being fully me. That's what maturity looks like. I'm not trying to copy. I'm not trying to mimic. I'm going to be me. Let me just touch on that elder brother for a moment. The elder brother is so interesting to me because that night in Orlando, Florida, lying on my hotel bed, reading this, reading every verse and scribbling alongside every verse, finding something that I hadn't quite seen before. I got to the elder brother and i heard the father say you're the elder brother i didn't like that very much I said come on god that's not fair and then i began to realize that i was and had been the elder brother what do you do about it see i started to realize yeah i'm the guy that goes come on god i've been working hard all these years i was sally i've been running this hotel you didn't ever throw a party for me I was that elder brother I was the elder brothers saw those young kids come back from the city messing their lives up with tattoo sleeves up both arms with ear piercings you can drive small cars through (laughs) they jump up on a stage and the first opportunity with a microphone they preach the gospel and people get saved healed and delivered and I'm sitting there going that's not fair God The father broke the rules for the elder brother. And there are some of you in here who need to know this. You need to know that the father would break the rules for you. You might be a little bit of an elder brother. You might have been working hard all these years. You might have been waiting for your moment. When's your moment come? I struggled with that. I, I was getting my experience working with people For five years in nursing and then 19 years in prison I was wondering when my day would come and actually I quit looking for it five years before I went to Bethel and told God I'll run prisons the rest of my life. A major turning point in my journey but that elder brother thing was still there. I'm the one, I'm the responsibility keeper, I work hard, I always show up, I'm always on time. If I was to quickly link this message to this afternoon's, I would say that the boy at the beginning of the story, when he asks for the money, is a creative because he wants to go into the city and find another way of living, not run a business. I would say that the boy, when he returns, is a returning evangelist because I've never met anybody who found themselves in the gutter who didn't want to tell everybody they met about what had happened to them. And I would suggest that the elder brother is a reformer waiting to happen because reformers work hard for years, but they need to know something. Some of you are reformers. You work hard. You're working at jobs, in business, in insurance, in law, in education, in healthcare. You're working hard. And if you have any sense of being an elder brother about you, I want to invite you to stand. The Father has something to say to you. I've always been with you. And everything I have is yours. It's the most extraordinary statement. But we lose it in religion. We lose the power of it because we're seeing it in a religious framework and we're not seeing it in the framework of a father who breaks the rules for love. And he broke the rules for you. And he wants to say to you, everything I have is yours. You might be working hard all these years. Reformation takes time. It takes years. But the Father wants you to know that everything he has is yours. That you have access to everything. I do believe that we need reformers who understand how to access the presence of God, the power of God. You have everything you need to change the world. I often talk about four names of people. Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Richard Branson, Bill Gates. The earth is being filled with the knowledge of their glory. I know that sounds heretical, but there's truth in it. It is being filled with the knowledge of their glory that doesn't point to God. And they're over here. All they have is made in the image of God. That's all they've got. But look what they did with it. And we're over here. Us, filled with the Spirit. Christ in us, the hope of glory. The mind of Christ and made in the image of God. But somewhere we resisted that made in the image of God. And if I can put it this way, religion told us, don't dare try to fly. But nobody told them, pun intended, not to fly. Nobody said to them what you can't do. That's why the Father wants to say to you, everything I have is yours. You're made in my image. You have the mind of Christ. You're filled with the Spirit. You have Christ in you, the hope of glory. He wants to say this to you. Everything, everything he has is yours and he's always been with you. It's time to access it. It's time to grab hold of him. The elder brothers who will come back into the banqueting room. You see, I want to ask you this question. What would the house look like after this? You may be seated. I believe it's time. I believe it's time to build what I would like to call post-prodigal churches. Churches that are full of mature men and women. Sons and daughters who became mature men and women. Who came to their right mind in the gutters of their life. Who heard the Father say, everything I have is yours. And what do we end up with? We end up being the fathers and mothers who carry what I like to call the father's toolkit. The father's toolkit. The father's toolkit looks something like this. It starts with being present. It starts with being present for sons and daughters. Because that father was present, waiting, present. What would it look like? If churches were full of mums and dads who were present, who were just waiting for the next person to walk through that door and to hitch up their robes and to run and not care what other people thought. The Father's Toolkit of Presence or of Trust. For me, the ring is a symbol of trust. It's a beautiful picture of trust. And the robe is a picture that says you're valued, you're worthy. And the sandal, the sandal as I understand it, is the Jewish symbol of sonship. If you study the Jewish wedding, the fourth cup of the wedding is the cup of sonship and the symbol is a sandal. And it's not a (laughs) flip-flop. Have you been to the Middle East? Those boys, they know what sandals to wear. They're Gucci, they've got diamonds and stuff encrusted in them. You see as mums and dads as we get to this point of maturity we we get to be present for sons and daughters. We we, we get to give trust to sons and daughters. I love there's a feeling in this house of empowerment. I've heard one or two people tell me about it Uh, and empowering people and trust go hand in hand. I'll guarantee that Duncan and Joe have been let down by people. They've trusted people that have let them down but it doesn't stop them trusting again. How do you trust again? You let down your hair again. I know it's weird for a guy with not much hair to talk about letting down your hair. But that's just the way the story goes. It's to give away trust, to give away identity, the sandal of sonship. uh, To say that you're valuable. To be houses of provision and to be houses of celebration. I dream of the post-prodigal church. What would it look like one year later, five years later with a son who knows who he is, a daughter who knows who she is and this time round she's not went, she's sent. She comes to dad with an idea or he comes to dad with an idea and says, hey, I got an idea. Oh, let's send you to go do that. Or the elder brother who doesn't change what he's doing But change his heart. He's working in the fields as part of the family business, believing for a reformation. I believe that's the assignment on our lives is to build the Father's house. And the genius of Jesus is that he communicated with everyone. And I honestly believe that one of the challenges that the church faces today is to work out how we communicate. With the world. This is my theory. You can do with it what you will. But the genius of Jesus, we need to find it again. We need to find the genius of the Son of God who communicated with everybody in front of him. This is my observation. I think that there's too much teaching of the Apostle Paul's teaching to the world. And not enough of Jesus. I think that Paul's teaching was more for the church and Jesus's was for the world. And I think we got them mixed up. That parable tells me that the genius, that is Jesus, told the world how much the Father loved them. And I believe there's a key in there, a key for us. As we wrestle with some of the big issues of our day. And we want to step into argument or we want to step into somehow saying that's wrong. You can't say that until people have come into the doors. And they're only going to come into the doors of a house where the mums and dads are present. Where the mums and dads give away trust and value, identity, celebration and provision. That's the message that Jesus gave us. And so we move from the context to repenting, changing the way we think. And we move from changing the way we think to becoming the mature mums and dads. And I'm going to continue a little bit of that tomorrow about how that happens. The things that we need to deal with in our minds to become the mums and dads that this world needs, to to overcome some of the obstacles, and to learn how to walk as mature men and women, which is what Ephesians chapter 4 is all about. Because for some reason, people get caught up on Ephesians chapter 4 and they stick to verse 4, verse 11. Are you a fivefold church? I don't really know. And I don't really care. I want to know if you're exhibiting the fruits of the gift of Christ. If you've become pastoral, apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, and teacheric. I want to know if I'm walking... It's a good word. I want to know... If you're equipping the saints for the work of ministry. I want to know if you're becoming a mature man. I, I want to know if, if you're becoming of the stature of Jesus Christ. I want to know if you're a body fitted together with every part working properly for the building up of, in love. That's what I want to know. Because I believe that's what a post-prodigal church would look like. If we kept walking the journey and we became the mature men and women. I want to invite you to stand. And here's what I want to do. See, when my dad died, I climbed up into my mum's attic and I found a box. Time has moved on and I guess at the time I would have kept the whole box. It was an interesting box. It had some engineering tools in it. It had the sharpest pencils I've ever seen in my life. My dad was a draftsman. He did the final drawings with Barnes-Wallace for the bouncing bomb. Had a gun in the box. I wish I'd kept that. I hand it into to the police because I was a well-behaved boy. It had a notebook of my dad's sermons, bearing in mind preached them a long time ago. I, I want every one of us to leave a toolbox in our attic for our sons and daughters. I want us to leave a toolbox with a robe of worthiness, a ring that says you're trusted. A sandal that says you're a son. I want us to leave our presence behind. I want to leave celebration behind. I want to leave provision behind. Father, I ask right now, would you help us to build toolboxes? To be mums and dads who carry toolboxes wherever we go. Ready as the father was to go. Get the rope, Get the ring. Get the sandals. Kill the fatted calf. And light the barbecue. Because there's a son coming home. There's a daughter coming home. There's somebody coming through those doors that needs a mum and dad. Father, I ask right now, hand out toolkits in this room. Hand out toolboxes. Help us to fill up our toolboxes. To be a church which is always ready. A people, a family, individuals, always ready. Always ready to be like the Father so that we get to reveal the Father. We're available. Fill up the toolboxes with rings and sandals, with robes, with really good barbecue equipment and get us ready to be the mature post-prodigal family that I believe you want us to be for the honour of your name I pray Amen